Good morning, church. Whether you are in the room or online or watching in Aberdeen or Huron, I know that we love you. We've been praying for you and have been looking forward to this moment where we get to worship corporately all week. Uh, this morning, we're going to conclude our series looking at the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to actually finish with John chapter 17. And for some of you that might seem random, why not finish all the way to the end? Uh, one of the things that you might have noticed is that every year at Easter for our service of shadows, we read almost in its entirety uh, the last several chapters of the Gospel of John. And so we thought we'd take this summer to read up through and to study up through uh, John chapter 17. And we end this morning with what I think is a powerful moment in the Gospel of John of, of Jesus' prayer uh, for his disciples and for the future church. And as I was reading and reflecting on Jesus' prayer this week, uh, one key question kept coming to my mind. And, and the question is, as the people of God, how do we live and engage well in the time and season and place in which we find ourselves? Um, I, I don't know about you, but there, there's some phrases that I use them all the time during the season, and I find myself just tired of them. Uh, I don't know if I've ever heard the word unprecedented used so many times. These are unprecedented times. Uh, these are, are, are crazy moments. It's a crazy season. I find myself using that all the time, finally to the point of like, okay, I'm just tired of it. And, and there's this moment where Jesus prays for his disciples and he prays for the church. And I think he teaches something really important and substantial about what kind of people we are to be and how we are to live and engage as the body of Christ in the time, season, and place in which we find ourselves. And what I want to assert to you this morning is that how we live our lives and the truth that we follow, if we are following truth, makes the utmost difference. And I want to illustrate that by telling you the story of Captain Thomas Musgrave. Captain Thomas Musgrave was a businessman. He was an entrepreneur. And he came up with this idea in 1860s to, to sail to Campbell Island. It's a sub-Antarctic island off the coast of New Zealand. I've got a map for you that will put up there in a second so you can get uh, some sort of sense of where Campbell Island is way down there in the south. And so he, he raised capital, he got business partners, and he said, what we're going to do, 1863, we're going to sail to Campbell Island and we will mine the tin reserves that are there. And, and on top of that, he told his business partners, on top of that, there, there are seals and we will harvest seals for their skin and for their blubber. This is a foolproof way to make money. So 1863, Thomas Musgrave sets sail with a crew of five total, including himself, and they arrive at Campbell Island, and lo and behold, there is no tin on Campbell Island. He's feeling a little bit of pressure, like, okay, I've raised a lot of capital, there's people waiting on me. Okay, plan B, let's hunt the seals that are numerous on Campbell Island. Uh, one more problem, there are no seals, in fact, on Campbell Island, or very few at this time of year. And so they, they continued their search and expedition around Campbell Island, and unfortunately, one of his sailors grew ill. Now, Campbell Island is uninhabited, and so they began to set sail north, headed back to the mainland of New Zealand, and a fierce storm blew in and began to batter the ship. They were aboard the Grafton, was the name of the ship. As they set sail for uh, New Zealand, they realized they weren't going to make it, and so they stopped at Auckland Island. You can see Auckland Island right there between uh, New Zealand and Campbell Island. And there's a narrow harbor on Auckland Island, and they attempt to set down anchor in this narrow harbor. Unfortunately, the, the storm was too great, and it ran the ship aground. 
So Thomas Musgrave and his crew of four that were with him, they got what they could to shore. They salvaged a gun, a little bit of gunpowder, the ship sails, a little bit of food, and they hunkered for days under the ship sail, waiting for this storm to blow itself out. Finally, several days later, the storm dissipated and they emerged into the sunshine. And as they described it in their journal, there was a feeling of thankfulness. There was a feeling of appreciation that God had spared them. And one of the sailors, his name is Raynal, he recounted this. He says this notion of thankfulness was reinforced when Captain Musgrave found a Bible in his chest that we had managed to get to shore. And it says, we begged him to read us some fine passage from the Gospels. Now, what I find fascinating about this is these men have just survived a shipwreck and they are begging the captain to read the Bible to them. I read that and I was, this is from a book called The Lost Island, by the way. I read that and I was convicted of that. Man, if if that's me, I'm probably complaining. God, why did you let this happen? What are you doing? And they're begging the captain, would you read the Bible to us? And Raynal wrote this. He says, we ranged in a circle around the captain before the tent and we listened, catch this, with the deepest attention to the Bible. And it says, Thomas Musgrave, the captain, chose the gospel according to Matthew. And, and he chose this passage about Jesus teaching to his disciples to love one another. And, and Raynal, the sailor, wrote this. As soon as Thomas Musgrave read Jesus teaching to love one another, they all entire burst into tears. And they would say that that was a turning point in their journey. Those five men, by the way, were shipwrecked on Auckland Island for over 18 months. While they were there, they built a cabin, they built a fireplace, they made crude beds. Uh, Towards the end of their time, they realized they weren't going to be saved. And so they set up a system of of chores and they had jobs and they had a rotation. If someone got sick, they all jumped in to, to nurse that person back to health. If they got injured, they took up their share of the work because they were rooted back in this teaching of Jesus to love one another. That's the truth that they chose to live by and it made a fundamental difference. In fact, there was so much trust At the end of their ordeal, they literally built a forge and a bellows, and they they took what leftovers they could from the ship. They built a boat, but it would only carry three people. Two of the crew stayed behind on the island, while the other three sailed to mainland to get help, and the other two trusted that they would return. Now, what's fascinating, and, and truth is sometimes stranger than fiction, what's fascinating is during the 18 months that Thomas Musgrave and the and the Grafton were shipwrecked on this island. Another ship, unbeknownst to them, shipwrecked on the north side of Auckland Island. It was a ship of 25. Of the 25, 19 of the crew made it to shore. What's fascinating is that their experience is vastly different. One of the sailors, Robert Holding, said it this way. He said, it's probable that had we been better acquainted with each other, things might have been somewhat different. As it was, he said, we didn't even know each other's names. And so there was no camaraderie to bind us together. This ship was called the Invercald, and the crew of the Invercald was quickly torn apart by infighting. In fact, Robert Holding, whose quote I just read, was so nervous of being murdered at one point that he fled the safety of the crew and tried to survive on his own. Very quickly, this crew devolved into into fighting, and, and someone was actually murdered, and cannibalism came into play. Of the 25, 19 made it to shore. Only three would survive. Where the Grafton... And Thomas Musgrave, his crew, was united around this teaching of Christ to love one another, and it made a fundamental difference. We see the stark contrast between this other ship that was shipwrecked, and it was every man for himself. Church, 
the truth that we live by makes a fundamental difference, particularly in difficult seasons. And what I think is fascinating as we come to John chapter 17 is that the disciples themselves are at an interesting turning point. In John chapter 13, we begin what's called Jesus' farewell discourse in the gospel of John. And it's his last moments with his disciples and he's teaching them and he's leaving his final words with with them. And at the end of John chapter 16, if you remember, as as Pastor Steve talked about it, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to be leaving. I'm I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to rise and ascend to sit at the Father's right hand. And he says, you're going to experience trouble in this world. Now, for the disciples, they have poured their life into following Jesus. They left behind families and stable jobs and family businesses. They have poured everything into following him. And now Jesus says, by the way, I'm not going to be with you much longer. As one of the disciples, you have to be getting a little bit nervous that this man that we followed, Jesus, we've poured our life into you, and now you're going to leave us? And as Jesus prays for them, I think Jesus gives a significant insight into how we as disciples, into how we as the church need to live and engage and push forward in the time and season in which we find ourselves. And so with that, we come to John chapter 17 and Jesus' prayer. Beginning in verse 1, we read this. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and and they have obeyed your every word. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture might be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. You are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you were in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me and they have that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. 
So again, let me come back to my key question, which is this. How are we to live and engage in the world in the time and place that we find ourselves in? And as Jesus is praying for the disciples, as I said, it's this turning point for them in their journey. And, and I love the way that Jesus prays. And, and I want to look this morning at his prayer and answer that question, at least in part. How, how do we engage? How do we move forward as the people of God, as disciples, as the body of Christ? And one of the first things that strikes me is that Jesus' example is the significance of a life of prayer. Now, Jesus, this is his last moment with his disciples, his last opportunity to give them teaching, to give them instruction. This is a significant moment. His time with them is limited. And yes, Jesus spent chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16 teaching them. And I love that in this one significant moment, here at the end, Jesus pauses and he says, let's, let's just pray. And after saying this, it says in verse 1, he looks towards heaven and he begins to pray for his disciples. Church, let me, let me ask this question. If it's important for Jesus to pray, oughtn't it be important for us to pray? If you read the Gospels and read them carefully, you'll notice in one place in Mark, it says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. If you read Matthew, you'll find these significant moments where Jesus steals off by himself to pray. And, and here's the reality. Yes, Jesus is the son of God, but he didn't get it any easier than we did. His ministry was empowered by his life of prayer rooted in deep relationship with, with the father. And if he leads a life of prayer as he models here, church, we are called also to lead a life of prayer. And, and, and here, here's the thing that I hear often, and, and I feel this tension, is uh, pastor, I just, we don't, we don't have time to pray. Can, can I offer this? It's not that we don't have time, but it's that we don't make prayer a priority. I, I want you to do this with me. If you're at home, do this. If you're watching Aberdeen here, do this with me. If you have a phone, I, I want you to pull it out. Uh, I should have brought mine with me. Um, I, I don't know how this works for Android devices. I know you can do the same thing. If you have an Apple device, I know you can go to settings. I want you to look at screen time. Would you do that with me? Ooh. right? Look at, look at your average daily screen time. Now, can I propose a question for you? What would it look like and how would our world be changed if we spent that same amount of time in prayer? What if we spent half that amount of time in prayer? What if we spent a quarter of that amount of time in prayer? What, what, what would the world look like? I mean, would revival pour forth if we spent a half hour, an hour? What, what would that look like? One of the passages of scripture that I've seen floating around on social media is the passage out of Chronicles that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and heal their land, right? And, and we love the sentiment of that passage, Lord, heal our land. But did you notice the beginning of it? It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, church, we have to actually humble ourselves and pray, Right? We want the healing, but that comes on the verge of the people of God humbling themselves in prayer, seeking the face of God. And notice, by the way, in that passage in Chronicles, who leads the way? If my people, right? That is addressed to followers of God. If my people, church, I think we are called to lead the way in being a people of prayer, interceding for our church, interceding for our community, interceding for our world, that we might know the healing and restoration and redemption that only God can bring. And Jesus models that life of prayer for us. So I want to suggest to you the first thing, if we're going to find a way forward, if we're going to engage intentionally in the time and place we find ourselves in, church, we have fundamentally first and foremost got to be a people of prayer. 
If we don't do it, who will? As Jesus continues teaching, I think his prayer highlights some fundamental things, right? As we answer this question, how do we live? How do we engage? There are some fundamental baseline things of what it is to live and walk with God and and to be the people of God in the time and place we find ourselves in. So I want to hit these quick. In in verse 2, Jesus says this. He says, you granted him, Jesus, authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Verse 3 says this. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the true God and Jesus whom you've sent. One of the fundamental baseline things in finding a way forward is, one, do you know God? All right, and this isn't knowing about, this isn't knowledge and facts, this isn't reading a theological textbook. To know God here is an experiential, intimate, relational knowing. It's not just knowing about, it's knowing him in a deep and intimate way. By the way, church, which I think is tied back to cultivating a a rich life of prayer. In prayer, we commune with Jesus, we commune with the Father, we commune with the Spirit, with the God of all creation who invites us to approach the throne of grace with freedom and confidence. Do you know him? As Jesus continues teaching, he highlights some fundamentals of what it is to be the people of God. In verse 8, he says this, For I gave them, the disciples, the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. Church, it is fundamentally important if we are going to be the people of God and walk in obedience. Do you know and accept the truth of God's word? Notice what he says. I gave them your word and they accepted it. But Jesus continues in in verse 6. He says it this way. I revealed you to those whom you gave me, the disciples, out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Church, have you accepted the truth of God's word and not only accepted it as as truth, but are we walking and living obediently by it? It's one thing to know the word, but to know the word and not put it into practice is to be deceived. But if we know God and have accepted his word of truth, we are called to obediently live it out. And finally, Jesus says this again in verse eight. He says, for I gave them, the disciples, the words that you gave me and they accepted them. They know with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he came to do what he said he would do? The book of Acts tells us that there is one name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Salvation is found only in Jesus and in him alone. And Jesus says, my disciples are those who know me, who have accepted my word of truth, who are walking in obedience and who know with certainty that Jesus is who he says he is. That is a non-starter. If you want to ask the question, how do we live and engage and, 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 and make a way forward through difficult times? It comes back to this, know and accept the truth of God's word, walk in an intimate relationship with him and live it out obediently. Because here's this core truth, is that Jesus reveals the heart and the character of God. Notice what it says in verse 6. Jesus says it this way. He says, Father, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me. Notice again in verse 26. He says, I have made you known to them. Jesus is the full revelation of who God is. Do you want to know what God, the creator of all the universe, is like? Look no further than Jesus. In Jesus, we see the heart and the character of who God is and of his deep and abundant love for us. And what I think is so amazing about this passage is not only do we see the fullness of who God is, of his love for us, but Jesus also calls us to join him in that mission. As Jesus reveals to us the truth and the heart and the character of who God is, he likewise turns around and calls us to reflect God's character in a broken world. 
So here's the call, to faithfully live out our identity and mission as people of God who know God, who've accepted his word of truth, who walk it out obediently and know with certainty that Jesus is who he says he is and he can do what he said he can do. Notice what Jesus says in verse 18. As you sent me, Father, into the world, I have sent them into the world. Church, we have to recognize that we are fundamentally a sent people. Right? Jesus prays before the Father and he says, Father, as you sent me to faithfully carry out this work of redemption and salvation and transformation, now as Jesus prays for the disciples, he says, Father, as you sent me, now I am sending my disciples into the world to bear witness to the truth and the hope and the salvation, the restoration that Jesus can bring. And church, I want to suggest to you that to find our way forward, to live and engage faithfully in the time and place that we find ourselves is not to draw back and ask the question, how do I survive and get through? It is to live fully engaged in the gospel mission of bearing witness to the truth of who Jesus has called us to be and how he's called us to live. You see, the danger of difficult circumstances is that we want to fall back to this place of going, well, who's going to watch out for me? How do I survive? How do I make it through? But that is not the call of the church. The call of the church is to go and make disciples, is to go and bear witness to the truth of the gospel. This is not a time for the church to shrink back. This is a time to push forward in our mission and ask this question in a season of difficulty. Might it be that our culture, that our community, that our world is hungry and open and receptive to the truth of God's word and is waiting for a unified church to push forward? with the truth on its lips. Could it be? Do not shrink back now, church. This is not a time to to fall into survival mode and just make it through. We have a significant work that the God of all creation has called us to. Here's the challenge, right? It's not, not all roses. I get that. Here's the challenge, verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them, the disciples, your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And and here's the reality. When Jesus gives his word and we accept it and we follow it and we live obediently to it, can can we just admit that the world is not going to like that? Because when we live according to the truth of God's word, it brings conviction to a culture that lives so counter to the truth of the gospel. And when you live out that truth, the world is sometimes going to look at us and go, what is wrong with the Christians? Why why do they do life this way? So there's going to be opposition in these moments. Right? That's the challenge of this. But what I love is how Jesus prays for his disciples in this moment that they would stay engaged. They have been sent. And and over and over throughout this uh, prayer, Jesus prays that the Father would protect his disciples as they engage their calling and mission in the world to be a sent people as Jesus has called us to be. Because I think as I look at it in in my own weaknesses, in my own flesh, I go, man, it's hard sometimes to live in a countercultural way, especially when the world brings hatred towards you for that, right? And I look at this and I go, Jesus, how do, how do I even begin to rise to this challenge? And as I looked through this, I, I found myself drawing hope and drawing comfort from Jesus' prayer. Isn't it amazing to think that Jesus prays specifically for us? Did you notice this prayer is divided into three sections? In the first section, uh, the first five verses, Jesus prays between him and the Father. In verses 6 through 18, he prays for the disciples. And then if you notice in verse 20, he says, My prayer is not for them alone, for the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe. 
Church, that's us. He's praying for the future church here, for those who will believe because of the message of the disciples. Jesus has prayed for us. He has interceded for us. And we can draw hope and strength from his prayer for us that we would not grow weary and lose heart. So, so what strength do we draw from Jesus' prayer? I would tell you first this, trust the protection of the Father. Notice how Jesus prays this in verse 11. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, the they being the disciples, the followers of Jesus. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. Protect them by the power of your name. And then again in verse 15, Jesus prays this. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them for the evil one. Twice in this prayer, Jesus prays that God the Father would protect the disciples as they are faithfully serving and living out that mission. And so this morning, I think there's two places we draw protection from. The first is this. There is protection in obediently living out God's word. As we accept and see the truth of how God has called us to live in his word, there is protection in living out his truth. Think of it this way. A few weeks ago, probably three, three and a half weeks ago now, um, I was making lunch for the kids, probably making macaroni and cheese. That's a big fan favorite in our house. And I make it and I turn around to set it on the counter and uh, dish it out in their plates. And I tell the girls all the time, hey, the stove is hot, the oven's hot, don't touch. And, and I think it must be a rite of passage for kids that they kind of step back and think, do you not want me to touch the stove because there's like fun stuff up there? Is that why? <laughs> what is this forbidden fruit you speak of? Right? So I'm dishing out their plates and I turn around just in time to see my youngest, she was three at the time, uh, just touch her fingers to the burner, right? Just in a, she got a, a decent burn, blistered pretty good. And she's crying. And so I, you know, I pick her up and hold her and I say, well, you know, what happened? She didn't want to tell me at first. She kept shaking her head. And I'm like, what happened? I touched the stove, right? Because she didn't believe and trust what I told her. I wasn't telling her not to touch the stove because I didn't want her to have any fun. I was telling her not to touch the stove because I wanted to save her from a wound that I knew that that would inflict. Listen, when God calls us to live out his truth, it's not because God wants to give us a list of rules to crush our fun. It's because the way God has called and asked us to live in the truth of his word is for our good. It's for our benefit. And I think right now our culture is feeling this pinch right? I mean, let, let, let me take one example. Think about what the scripture talks about in terms of, of taking on debt. The borrower is a slave to the lender, and we live in a culture where if you can make the payments, you should get it, right? And so now when we encounter a difficult season and suddenly our, our, our economy is slowing down, there's a lot of people nervous about whether or not they can make all the payments on the things, but that's the American way, but that's not how scripture calls us to live, right? And God calls us to live a certain way in a hundred other ways in his word, not because he wants to crush our fun, because it's how we were designed and created to live in relationship with him, walking out his truth obediently, and it changes how we do life. And there is protection in following obediently God's word, and notice too how Jesus says, protect them by the power of your name. Now, when he says the power of your name, a person's name is indicative of their character. It's indicative of their identity. And so when Jesus says, protect them by the power of your name, he is, is, is calling attention to the fact that his father is the God of all creation, is the God of the universe, the God who spoke everything into existence, who has the seas and the mountains in his hand. He is all powerful. And he says, God, Father, you are all powerful. Would you protect your people? by the power of who you are. And I love how Jesus said it in John 16. 
You will have trouble in this world, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And church, we can trust that even if the world resists us and resists the message of the gospel, that we have the Father, the God of all creation on our side, walking us through, protecting us, watching over us. Now, beyond trusting God's protection, I think there's some key things that Jesus calls us to. If we're going to live engaged and live fully present in the time and season and the place that we find ourselves in, I think we have to take seriously Jesus' call to live and walk in unity. Let, let me read this for you. Notice in verse 11, Jesus says this. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, the disciples. I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, uh, the name you gave me. Catch this. So they may be one as you and I are one. Notice uh, again where Jesus says, in uh, verse 21, he says it this way. I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you were in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe. Right? May they all be one. And again, Jesus says this in verse 23. He says, I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. And church, Jesus prays here. And, and by the way, notice again, there's this division in the prayer. Jesus prays for the disciples in 6 through 18 and prays for the future church. In both his prayer for the disciples and his prayer for the future church, in both places, Jesus prays that we would dwell in complete unity. And he says it this way, I in them, Jesus dwells within us, and them dwelling in me. As we dwell in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit of God empowers us to live life together in perfect unity. You know, you know what breaks my heart? is that we live in a time that is incredibly divided and we live in a time where there are lots of opinions about a lot of things. And at times I see that divisiveness creep into the church and we want to argue about opinions about whether we should wear a mask or not wear a mask, all these things. Those are important conversations, but we cannot let it affect the unity of the church. We can have different opinions. We can disagree. But at the end of it all, we have to remain unified around the teaching of Jesus, around what it means to be the body of Christ. Let me read this out of Ephesians 4. I love the way uh, Paul says this there. In Ephesians 4, verse 2, Paul says this. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. No, notice how Paul says, make every effort. He doesn't just say, you should try pretty hard to keep unity. Kind of. Like, no, Paul says, make every effort. Unity is a non-negotiable in the body of Christ. And, and we'll talk about why in a second. There is a deep, deep, deep urgency to this idea of unity. But church, we must recognize that we are called to live and to dwell in unity, empowered by the Spirit and the grace of God who enables us to do that. And, and I read verse 2 of Ephesians 4. Does this describe the way that you view other believers with whom you disagree? Are you completely humble and gentle? Are you patient? Are you bearing with them in love? Listen, I know, church, tensions run high when stresses run high. But in the middle of this, we need to model a new way. As the world watches the church, let us be completely humble and gentle and patient. And let us bear with one another in love. Let us model a new way. Notice then what also Jesus calls his disciples to. He calls them to live a life of holiness. And notice what he prays in verses 17 uh, through 19. He says, Father, sanctify them. This is the disciples by the truth of your word. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. 
He calls the disciples to live a holy life. And church, we are called fundamentally to live a holy life. To be sanctified means to be made holy, that we can be set free from willful sin, that we can walk in obedience to the truth of God, and we can model a new way of living and being in the world. And by the way, church, the word sanctified, to make holy, means to live set apart. Pastor Steve said this a few weeks ago, that we are called to be a peculiar people. And far too many of us in the church settle for an ordinary life. The call of the American dream is is pretty ever-present, right? Get a couple cars, maybe a couple toys, have the house, the kids, the white picket fence, all the things, the nice 401k, and that can become the way and the focus that we do life. And yet Jesus says, here, Father, sanctify them, set them apart. When something is holy, it is set apart in worship for God. Church, let us not settle for an ordinary way of living, just pursuing the American dream. Let us realize that we are called to be a holy people, that you were designed and created to be an instrument of worship set apart to pursue God and to to bear witness to his truth in the world. That's who we're called to be. And Jesus says, for them, I sanctify myself. What he means there is he has set himself apart to fully go through this call that the father has placed on him to lay down his life on the cross to pay the penalty of his sins. And Jesus has set himself apart in that way that we too might be made holy and empowered to walk in obedience to the truth and the word of God to make a difference in the world. So let me put this simply. Can I take a breath? I feel like I'm talking fast. Sorry if it's like fast paced. This is, I think if I could pick one passage to preach from for the rest of my life, this might be it. I I feel this this morning, right? Put simply, we are called to a faithful and obediently gospel-centered life set apart in service to God and one another in love. That's it. It's that simple. And church, here's why this matters. Let me draw your attention back to verse 21 to highlight this in, um, the seriousness of this. Jesus says, I pray that all of them may be one, that the body, right? That for those who will believe because of the message, that they may be one, just as you were in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Why? May they also dwell in us. Catch this. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays that the church would dwell together in unity so that the world at large would believe the message of the church that God the Father sent the Son to die on their behalf. Church, there is urgency in living and dwelling together in unity because in unity, the world looks at the church and the world is divided, the world is fractured. But when the world looks at the church, they should see a diverse group of people bound together by the love of God, the truth of his word, by the power of his spirit. And they should ask this question, why do those Christians, why are they humble and gentle and patient? Why do they bear with one another in love? Why are they so united when the rest of the world is so divided? And we should bear witness to a new way of living and being in the world. And here's the thing. Some of us are far more concerned about opinions surrounding the pandemic than we are that everyday people and die and go to hell. What are you posting most about on your social media feed? What do you find yourself consumed by talking about all the time? I don't care what your opinions are about things. I, I care a little bit. I don't want to discount that totally. But what matters, church, is that we make every effort to live in unity for the cause of Christ. Why? Verse 21, so that the world might believe. That's what matters. We cannot afford to fall asleep in this, right? Verse 23, again, this urgency. Jesus says that I would be in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. By the way, notice what Jesus says, that I would dwell in them. It's the power and presence of God that empowers unity. 
I'll be the first to tell you I'm a selfish, self-centered person, but by the grace of God, I can be empowered to be selfless, to live a holy set-apart lifestyle in unity with one another by, by God's power. He says this, I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, it, there's an if-then statement, they would be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them. Church, we are called to dwell together in complete unity, living in relationship with God the Father Almighty, empowering this unified life of the body of believers. Why? So that the world would know that Jesus has been sent and that they would know God's love for them. Right? This is, this is the urgency behind this matter is that we live in a world that is incredibly hopeless in a lot of places. We live in a world that is fundamentally broken because they've rebelled against God's truth, against God's word, against how he has called us to live. And the church is called to be a unified body of believers who bear witness to the love of God. And as I was thinking about this this week, we know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his son. What strikes me here, going back to verse 18, as the Father sent me, so have I sent you. There's this sense in which we can also say that God so loved the world that on the other side of Jesus' sacrifice, he now sends the church to bear witness to his love, to bear witness to his truth, that we might draw people to Jesus that they might know. Let us not settle for an ordinary life, church. Let us live set apart as a people of prayer, trusting the protection of the Father, living and dwelling in unity. So I'm gonna leave you with just three uh, points of reflection and response this morning. Make prayer a priority. If you don't know where else to start, can, can we just start there? Make prayer a priority. Don't, don't find time. Where can you make time? Cultivate unity. How do we cultivate unity? I go back to Ephesians 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. I mean, even as I think about my relationship with my wife, part of how I cultivate unity in my marriage is sometimes dwelling in humility, saying, you know what? You were right on that. I was wrong. Dwelling in humility, saying, you know what? We don't see eye to eye on this, but we can, unless it's a core gospel issue, we can agree to disagree. I still love you. I'm still bearing with you. I'm still patient. Let us cultivate unity. And I want us to reflect on this. How can we live sent and serving this week? To be a sanctified people, we are sent to serve and to bear witness. As we close this morning and, and close out the Gospel of John series, I, I want to do something a little bit different. As, as we talk about making prayer a priority, I, I want us to practice this together as a unified body this morning. And so we're going to read a liturgical prayer together. And the word liturgy, when, when I say liturgy, for many of us, you go, okay, this is a memorized thing. The word liturgy means the work of the people or the public work. Liturgy is a public, unified, corporate moment of confession and prayer and worship. And uh, during the venue host moment when Dave was doing the announcements and, and, and everything, there, there's that pastoral prayer moment where the pastor's praying and you sort of participate vicariously from your seat listening to their prayer. But church, I think sometimes we miss the beauty of praying corporately together. And throughout the history of the church, there's been this practice uh, in the body to, to pray together. And the rhythm looks something like this, that the pastor will uh, throw out a, a prayer request 
And the church would say one of two things. Sometimes it would be, Lord, hear our prayer. And what it is, it's a moment where the body comes together and says, yes, we're praying in agreement on this. Other times in the prayer we'll read this morning, uh, your response will be, Lord, have mercy. And what it is, is it's inviting God's mercy and God's grace into a place that sometimes we don't even know how to pray with specific words. And this prayer that we're going to read this morning has been used by the church since the late fourth, early fifth century. And so as we pray this together, we are joining in unity in the body of Christ, praying together, and we are joining the great cloud of witnesses, the global church that has been praying for these things since the beginning of time. So church, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. If you're at home, would you, would you stand at home too? Huron, Aberdeen, if you guys would stand. And I'm, I'm actually going to turn my back to you. Uh, and, and read with you, I'm joining you as the body this morning. Your responses will be in red and italics this morning. Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, both now and forevermore. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. For the peace of God and for the salvation of our souls, let us pray to the Lord. for the peace of the whole world, for the stability of the holy churches of God, and for the unity of all, let us pray to the Lord. For this holy house, and for those who enter it with faith and with reverence and the fear of God, let us pray to the Lord. For our church leaders and the clergy and the laity, let us pray to the Lord. For our country, for all its people and those entrusted with civil authority, let us pray to the Lord. For this parish and city, for every city and country, and for the faithful who live in them, let us pray to the Lord. For travelers by land, sea, and air, for the sick and the suffering, the captives, and for their salvation, let us pray to the Lord. For our deliverance from all affliction, wrath, danger, and distress, let us pray to the Lord. Help us, save us, have mercy upon us and protect us, O God, by your grace. With all of the saints, let us commit ourselves and one another and our whole life to Christ our God. Lord, our God, whose power is beyond compare and whose glory is beyond understanding, whose mercy is boundless and love for us is ineffable, look upon us and upon this holy house in your compassion. For to you belong all glory, honor, and worship to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit now and forever and to the end of ages of ages. Amen. May the Lord have mercy upon us.